0: hello everyone welcome to the second episode of carpet city cinema a gila films podcast i'm david weaver and um you know originally in the first episode the pilot which i thank you for Uh, checking that out. We've had some really great response to that, uh, really great feedback. I had mentioned um, the half dozen or so episodes of this series, which I recorded a little over a year ago, that uh, as with the pilot, that we'd be kind of launching those out uh, as our first few episodes. And and then I thought to myself, well, you know, there's some things I wanted to talk about that are going on in the industry now, or people who've passed away, or movies I've seen, and I could record those episodes now. And drop the old episodes, then drop the new ones, but then we'll be like five weeks behind. So I think I'm going to hold off on those older episodes and, uh, perhaps use them, uh, down the road as either fillers or, uh, I'm looking into the possibility of even maybe launching a Patreon at some point and maybe use those as a special perk. But, uh, just going to dive into the second episode right now. And I think the first thing, um, well, first actually we should look at the, the questionnaire. We, uh, we're able to, with Spotify, which is the platform right now that we have our podcast on, and we're going to be branching out to some other platforms too, but it gives you the option to have like a questionnaire at the end. And we asked, which was your favorite Death Wish film? You know, with the options obviously being the original five, and then the remake with Bruce Willis. And no surprise, the, uh, the very first one was the winner. And I, as I mentioned before, I've only seen the first three. I'm hoping to get onto four and five. Um, soon and even cover those in the podcast probably don't know that i'll ever dig into to bruce's contribution but you know definitely the first one is uh in its own league it's a it's a truly great film so not really surprised at that um that that came out on top in our first very first carpet city cinema poll but moving on from there i th- think the first thing to do is kind of to catch up on what's been going on with gila films uh obviously when I recorded that pilot episode. Um, the last Frankenstein, our first feature film, was going through its uh, film festival circuit. And we finished that up uh, last fall. Uh, you know, you have a good, good year-long run on the film festival circuit and had really good responses from people. We ended up at uh, a total of 16 festivals and won awards at three of them. I was able to go in person to a couple of them, one out in Buffalo, the Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival, which is organized by Gregory Lamberson, who's a filmmaker. Uh, people probably know him from his movie Slime City. Um, and also I was able to go to the Adirondack Film Festival up in Glens Falls. And, you know, it's great to be able to see your film on a big screen with an audience that has no connection to you. You know, obviously, really appreciate the people who came out to the premiere, the local screenings, but, you know, in the back of your mind, you know, you know, these people are your home court and they if they're not even there just for you they might be there for the crew or just because you know we feature the town of Amsterdam the city of Amsterdam so much but it's interesting to see what is the response going to be from people who really have no connection to the film and it was good it was it, they they really seemed to enjoy it they did a Q&A out at Buffalo and people had some really interesting questions and takes on it um, you know at the end of the film, where. Jason Frankenstein is uh, tracking down the creature uh, and talks to his girlfriend Penny about how he has to head up north to find the creature. He thinks the creature will go to someplace remote. It was interesting that people in the audience, kind of a couple people took that as a, a tip of the hat to the actual Frankenstein novel by Mary Shelley, how you know the, that book ends with a, a pursuit of the creature up to the Arctic, uh, and which is not what I intended with that. But uh, it was definitely interesting to see people kind of taking things from that. So yeah, it was a really good, really good time on the film festival circuit. We were all over uh, the U.S. We were out in San Francisco, we were down south to Florida, and we even had one international festival in Dublin, which is our first one. So during the film festival, you start to get, the fe- during the film festival season, you start to get in uh, distribution offers, and that's kind of the next consideration you need to start making. You know, how, how am I going to get this movie out there on DVD and Blu-ray or out streaming? And you have to be careful, obviously, uh, because a lot of these offers are from uh, predatory companies, um, which will basically offer to license your film, give you a, uh, a split of the proceeds, which sounds really favorable to you. But then, in the you know the fine print of uh, the contract, there's this mentioning of um, you know. Uh, advertising or marketing costs that may need to be first recouped and how it could reach up to $50,000 or X amount of money. But don't worry, we're, we probably won't spend that much. It just could. And what a lot of times that can result in is they've, you know, your, this company licenses your movie, they have, you know, the rights to it for so many years. And they find a way to rack up that those marketing costs, not in any way that really will probably show uh, in terms of necessarily getting uh, the proper attention to the film, but it will make it so you don't get any money out of it. And not that with this film I would ever expect to, you know, you know, hit the jackpot, but I think it's more just, you know, the knowledge that you and a bunch of other people put your time and effort into this, that you, you want to constantly treat the project with respect, even when you're dealing with matters such as distribution. And, you know, I've known people, um, you know, who have signed these contracts and, you know, put a lot of hard work into the movies and basically, you know, haven't seen anything from them while the movie is racking up tons and tons and tons of views on, you know, whatever streaming site it's on. Um, So we had a number of those offers. uh, And it's just really, you know, nothing that really stood out. Uh, It started to reach the point where I, uh, you know, was heavily considering uh, self-distributing. And that's really what we did with streaming. You know, that's, that's really... And that's not really too difficult a process. You know, there's there's a site called Film Hub where you can kind of like upload your movie to and it's kind of like a one-stop shop where all the different streaming sites can come and look at the product that's available and license it. And you know, I've I decided to take the step of just like, all right, instead of trying to find someone to license it um, you know, for streaming, you know, instead of hoping that someone will come along and make me an offer why don't we just take the step of just at least putting it up on film hub and seeing what happens there proactively. And we ended up getting a bunch of bites on it, which is great. You know, um, Amazon Prime picked it up, Tubi, uh, Plex TV. Uh, we just had a channel uh, on YouTube, Stash TV, picked the film up. And most of these options, uh, a lot of people to watch the movie for free. Um, so, you know, again, you're not going to Make bank on this, right? You're not going to get rich on this, especially with streaming, because, you know, you're getting, uh, you know, so much, so many pennies per click, essentially. But the great thing about it is, A, you are getting paid for it. It is official. They are having to pay you a cut. Um, So there's none of this worrying about any kind of, you know, hidden costs or upfront fees that weird fees that you might uh, get deducted from your proceeds. And also it's getting out there to the world. And that's really important too, is, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money off Amazon prime. You're not going to make a lot of money off having it on a YouTube channel, but a lot of people are on prime and YouTube. And so it can bring an awareness to the, to the film. We just put the movie up on YouTube. Uh, Well, I mean, we didn't, the, the, the channel that licensed it within the last week. And, you know, it's already at like over 400 views. And that's just great. It's great to see that uh, kind of engagement with us. And hopefully as more people traffic to see it, that, um, you know, those wonderful algorithms on YouTube and these sites will just keep driving, will, will drive awareness of the film on their own, you know, that these sites will start promoting the film and finding ways to suggest it to people. Like, you know, uh, if you like this movie, you might like the last Frankenstein, that kind of thing. So if you're wondering what you can do for the last Frankenstein to help it along, you know, if you see it on YouTube, if you see it on prime, anywhere like that, just, you know, give whatever kind of positive review you can not all these sites allow reviews. You know, YouTube might just let you have a thumbs up and write a comment. Prime, you know, has options for uh, five-star ratings, or even just head over to the IMDB, Internet Movie Database, and give us some love there. But that really will help kind of, you know, like I said, it helps fuel those algorithms that really drive drive awareness of the movie. Now, moving on to uh, physical media release for the film, DVD, Blu-ray. Uh, that, you know, that's obviously, unlike streaming, there is this this actual cost to make that happen because you're actually manufacturing a product. With With the streaming, the only cost I had to put into it was uh you know, paying to generate subtitles um, because that was a requirement, but that was really it. So with putting it out on physical media, uh, I knew though that that would definitely be something that would really benefit me to find a partner on that because, you know, the films cost a lot of money and, um, you know, it really hasn't even gotten out in the world yet. So we aren't really seeing much income from it. So to find someone to kind of help shoulder that would really be of benefit. And we were really fortunate. You know, I can't go into... Details yet as to who it is, but we did find a distributor, uh, someone who I already knew, someone who has a really great reputation within the physical media uh, realm. Um, and people who you know are collectors of, you know, genre movies, of cult movies, will definitely be happy when they find out where this film is going to find a home. I can't say what the uh, rollout plan right now is for it, so we have to hand over to this distributor, all our materials by you know the beginning of April, at which point they'll turn around and start the process of building and manufacturing discs. And they said that won't take too long, you know, I, I think probably by even end of summer, you, we might have the disc out. But what we're doing then is we've been getting the gang back together, the cast and crew, and uh, started filming a making-of about the movie. A big assist there from uh, producer extraordinaire, Jay Leonard, who's editing that. And uh, we all had some of the more local people come in. Uh, We did some Zoom interviews with some of the more long-distance people. And Jay and I already had recorded a couple commentary tracks for the movie. We've got a bunch of behind-the-scenes photos. I've been already edited together, you know, the very little in the way of deleted scenes, and I'm now building an outtakes reel. And it's going to be a really, uh, you know, pretty packed release. And initially, we'll only be probably have out the Blu-ray, which uh, I know some people haven't made it to Blu-ray yet from DVD. But uh, that just because of the uh, the model we're taking for rolling this out, initially there'll be a limited edition Blu-ray release. It'll basically only be available through the distributor's site. And also, I'll have some copies, you know, for people who are local. And we'll kind of gauge that for a little while, see how sales go. And then we'll look into moving on to a, a retail edition, a standard edition, which what that means is like the limited edition might come with like a nice slip cover or a nice cover art that won't be on the uh, the regular edition. And probably about the same time as we put out the standard edition, which we're hoping to, uh, you know, use some connections that this distributor has to maybe even get that into some places like Walmart or into, big, into uh, some of the other big stores. Um, but at the same time that we get that standard edition rolling out, we'll also get the DVDs going for those, for those of you who haven't made the next jump in physical media evolution. So that's, uh, the kind of the future of the last Frankenstein. And in terms of where the storyline will go in the future, you know, I'm, I'm actively working on a sequel script, um, which, I mean, it's possible that we could start rolling on that at the end of 2023. It may not be till 2024, but that's the next uh, project that Gila Films has in store in terms of uh, original content. And, you know, the script's coming r- together really well, um, you know, had the story pretty well mapped out. Um, we're going to be bringing back some of the cast members from the first film. Uh, Jim Bolson and Gina Petronella will be returning as Dean Thurman and Dana, except he uh, uh, Thurman will not be a college dean anymore. He'll be uh, in charge of a different type of institution. And uh, Brett Owen, who played uh, Hugh Frankenstein, Jason's father in the flashback scenes in The Last Frankenstein, he'll be coming back to play a different role. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll have uh, some more details about that soon. Uh, I would just say that if you're a fan of The Last Frankenstein, and if you're a fan of 1970s prison movies, this sequel will basically be kind of taking those two worlds and putting them into one. Um, it, I'm a big fan of a 1970s TV movie called the glass house with Alan Alda and Vic Morrow. Uh, it's a, a prison movie, but, and it's made for TV, but it's, it's pretty, pretty impactful for something that had to adhere to 1970s network standards of content. It's a, it's a great film. Um, so, if you're familiar with that, it's really uh, that kind of tone that we're going to be going for with The Last Frankenstein sequel. So, and I, I believe The Glass House is available on um, Amazon Prime or YouTube. So, if you ever get around to watching that movie before our sequel comes out, just imagine that movie with The Last Frankenstein uh, storyline and characters and kind of events happening in it. And now that we're finally finishing up everything with Last Frankenstein 01. Uh, this will allow us to kind of start turning our attention to um, restoring UFO Target Earth and kind of uh, getting that going. So, you know, UFO Target Earth is the 1974 um, cult science fiction movie that uh, I purchased the rights to from the film's director. And we have the negative and uh, looking to do a uh, full-blown restoration on that that movie and get it out on uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Hopefully, by the end of the year, maybe the beginning of next year. I, I kind of touched upon some of this, I believe, in the pilot episode, but um, you know, we have the directors on board. We've got a bunch of um, uh, memorabilia that we're going to scan and we can put into uh, the uh, extras. Uh, the director's going to do a commentary track. Um, I've started to track down some of the cast. So, uh, really looking forward to kind of bringing that film um, back out because it hasn't had a legitimate release since the VHS release. Um, and it's interesting, you know, it's a film that doesn't have, I think I touched on this in the pilot episode, doesn't really have uh, a great reputation, yet tons of people still watch it, right? You know, uh, taking over the copyright of it, you know, one of the things I kind of discovered was that, you know, the director, Alessandro, Uh, understandably, hadn't really been able to defend his intellectual property rights on the movie. You know, he had moved on to other projects. He had licensed it to TV. He had obviously put it out in theaters. He had the VHS deal. But, you know, as technology moved on, it got to the DVD era, and Alessandro moved on to other projects, you know, he wasn't able to keep, you know, as tight an eye on on it. And so there's been, you know, numerous DVD releases of a budget label. It's on numerous, uh, you know, YouTube, and it was on Internet Archive. And I had to go through the process. Oh, and I should say that all, all these copies are taken from that same VHS tape. You know, basically they, they, they took the, uh, the transfer, the master that was on that VHS tape and just, you know, stole it and copyrighted, copied it. Which is, you know, that's a, what is that now? Like almost 40 year old transfer that's not even in the right aspect ratio. So you're seeing like, you know, microphones, you know, come in from the top and things like that. And I had to go through and take down all those different copies offline, and it didn't really take that long to get them all down. Um, but then, just recently, within the last couple months, uh, someone put it up back up on YouTube, and uh, it took me a devilishly long time to get that one down. the the The, uh, the gentleman who was hosting it on YouTube was. Um, not very understanding of the idea that it wasn't you know he didn't have the right to put it up there but it all worked out in the end but the interesting thing is that the movie was only up up there for a few months and here it is it's it's a very low budget 1970s movie it's like you know 50 years old there's no names really in the cast it you know it doesn't have a high budget special effects and just within the short time this guy had it up on his channel it had like almost 30,000 views so it just really goes to show how much even like the lesser known cult films from that era just still have this huge audience, you know, that, that this little known movie um, could kind of still get that much attention. So even, you know, people watching this really horrible transfer of it, you know, and it's just really, you know, it just continues to uh, uh, delight me that, you know, that that type of cinema still has an audience because I'm a big fan of the movie, obviously, you know, so that, again, that will hopefully happen by the end of this year. Fingers crossed, you know, uh, it's really been about getting uh, The Last Frankenstein to the final stages before we can move on to Target Earth. And I think that really kind of gets everything up to speed with Gila Films. You know, obviously this podcast, been developing that for a while. Um, Jay, um, you know, I he has a, a really, a bunch of really great creative partners behind the camera and behind sound on his projects, but I always am honored that he brings me into uh you know to private screenings of his of his newer films that he's continuing to direct and uh, his latest film has just gotten out there uh break glass it's uh just about to go out into the film festival circuit so um you know jay's obviously like you know the um the sibling the uh, the the connected sibling of Hilo films with his company Trenchmouth productions so uh, definitely, if you get a chance, check out Break Glass, which is his newest project. Um, there's a Facebook page for it, and that also has other Last Frankenstein uh, team members on it: uh, Keely Sheridan, Jeff Riano, and um, Jorge Luna, who are all in our movie. The Last Frankenstein are all in that in that film as well. All right, so since the last uh, in the last couple weeks, uh, there's been some stuff going on in the industry. Just want to touch on real quick. Obviously, they had the Oscars. Uh, recently. And I, you know, I really haven't seen much in the way of the newer crop of films. I don't really have much skin in the game. There's obviously the ever ongoing debate about awards in general. You know, there's the one side which feels this, you know, on the extreme that it doesn't really have a lot of value. It's all political. There's the other extreme, which, you know, just really loves and reveres it. And, um, you know, both sides have their merit. I just think it was great to see these people uh, finally take home awards who, have such a long history in the industry you know and interestingly a lot of the people who i was really happy to see get awards you know their origins are really in kind of genre films You know, obviously jamie lee curtis you know taking home the best supporting actress oscar for everything everywhere all at once you know it's even if she just just the fact alone that she's hollywood royalty right that her parents are tony curtis and janet lee you know two huge movie stars uh, both academy award nominees themselves uh, that would be great in and of itself to see her, you know, carry on the family tradition and, and win the the first award for the family. But also, you know, her, her film debut was in Halloween and, uh, you know, became this kind of like the, you know, iconic definitive scream queen of the slasher era, you know, with the sequels to that and movies like Prom Night and Terror Train and The Fog um and obviously showed herself adept at other genres you know as time went on and she appeared in stuff like a fish called wanda and true lies um but great to see her her finally get some you know get that recognition by the industry um also you know same thing for you know michelle yo who won best actress for the same film you know her roots are in you know the uh, asian martial arts cinema you know uh uh, Brendan Fraser taking home the best actor Oscar for The Whale. I mean, this is someone who obviously there's been a lot of talk about this kind of resurgence in his career. And this isn't the first, you know, acclaimed you know film he's ever been in. He was in Crash. He was in Gods and Monsters, uh, School Ties. But, you know, he's really known for kind of like the lighthearted stuff, you know, the George of the Jungle and uh, the late action movies like The Mummy, and so to see him kind of get this recognition, you know, for him and, and have this kind of ability to um, find a new uh, and more uh, for him, it would see, it seems from his interviews, a uh, more personally rewarding uh, part of his career trajectory, you know, that's great. That's great for him. Um, and then, of course, Ki uh, he, he Kwan, uh, who used to go by the name uh, Jonathan Key Kwan, when he was a child actor, you know, he won Best Supporting Actor for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and again, uh, just a great comeback story. This was someone who started out as a child actor. You know, he was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, and the Goonies, of course, those iconic roles in there. And you know, to see again, just to complete, see this um, this person whose career goes back to his youth, that goes back uh, 40 years. Who again, these kind of more genre type films to to kind of have this huge comeback in his career, um, and get recognition for that. All, all awesome to see that happen. And, uh, last but not least, uh, my girl, Sarah Polly, who I was, you know, in the mid 2000 aughts there when she was doing, uh, starring in movies like, you know, Dawn of the Dead and Go and, uh, no such thing. You know, I, you know, I had a big crush on her. She, she's an actress whose films I saw out a lot. And of course, you know, uh, had been around since she was a really young actress. You know, she had been in the uh, Ramona and Beezus, uh show. She had been on the road to Avonlea series and in films like uh, Baron Munchausen. But now, of course, she's become this you know acclaimed director writer of her own, uh, and won the best. She won the best screenplay Oscar this year for her film Women Talking, which she also directed. So again, someone who has these uh, this long history in the industry, going back to her childhood. Uh, someone who has a lot of genre connections definitely would link Dawn of the Dead*, um, but also, you know, has appeared in works like um, *The Sweet Hereafter* and *My Life Without Me* that have gained a lot of attention in the past. You know, again, finally getting uh, this kind of recognition to her craft. And so, even if you know you don't think highly of the awards or you don't think they have much value, or the whole uh, politics aspect of it, there's still something you know that's it's good to see they Were recognized on some level, these people who have been uh, really hard working in the industry for so long. And then we had a, a, a few passings uh, of some people from uh, the world of film that I just wanted to touch on, and a couple centenarians actually. Um, uh, the last few weeks we lost the one and only Bert I. Gordon, um, who was a uh, director of exploitation films, uh, mainly in the science fiction and horror arena. And the prime of his kind of like the the high point of his career was really like the mid-50s to the mid-70s. And when you think of like 50s drive-in exploitation films, uh, you know, Roger Corman is probably one of the directors who's, uh, if not the director who first kind of identify with those types of films during the last half of the 50s and going into the 60s. But I think that uh, Gordon uh, is definitely probably, he's probably the second one, I think, that kind of is almost uh, most identified with those. You know, you obviously have people, you know, who are very well known among cult fans. And, and I, I'm talking about American cinema here, obviously, as you get out to Europe and, you know, the Italian films, the British films, there's other other directors uh, who gained a lot of attention. But when you're really talking about that American drive driving uh, exploitation experience of the mid-50s to the mid-60s, it's really like Corman. And then after that, I think Gordon is one of the most recognized directors now like I said you have people like Ray Dennis Steckler you have people like Ed Wood um, who many would argue are you know just as well known as Gordon if not better known but they were definitely the thing about a lot of those directors is they're working at a even a much lower budgeted uh, capacity or you know some of them didn't really get recognition as much till later on in life or even after their death um, like Wood but you know you know gordon was kind of like the uh the next the next rung below uh a Corman. and you know he started the first film he feature film he did was a movie called serpent island which he was the producer on he didn't direct it he produced it and it's kind of like a a very low budget movie with sunny tufts it's kind of like a mixture of uh you know uh horror adjacent uh, uh trekking through the jungles uh, exotica with, uh, you know, elements of action and adventure. But then uh, with his next film, he got right into the directing. And his uh, directorial debut was King Dinosaur. And really right away, he, uh, with, you know, the films he was finished off the decade with in the 50s, uh, movies like The Amazing Colossal Man, Earth vs. the Spider, uh, War of the Colossal Beasts, The Cyclops, he really has started to make a name for himself as this uh, director of films that in which the threat, the antagonist, if you will, really comes from uh, basically some type of giant animal. Uh, you know, it, it might be a giant enraged, crazed, deformed foreign person. Like I said, like in the case of the amazing colossal man and its sequel, it might be earth versus the spiders, a giant spider, obviously uh, going into the sixties and seventies. He did movies like empire, of the ants, obviously giant ants, A Village of the giants kind of going back to those enlarged people again. Um, The Food of the Gods has uh, Marjo Gortner surrounded by a a host of uh, uh, various uh, giant animals. And because of his tendency to do these types of films and of his his name, his initials, he got the nickname Mr. B.I.G., Mr. Big. And uh, he even inverted the formula once uh, with Attack of the Puppet People, where uh, you're dealing with uh, people miniaturized. Uh, But I think, you know, I look back, I think the first gordon movie i ever saw was beginning at the end 1957 peter graves and the lovely peggy castle and that time around the threat was giant locusts um but i think um of those movies he did of those types of film scenes i think probably my favorites uh, would be earth versus the spider which has some pretty pretty good um I wouldn't say jump scenes, jump scares, because I think that's pushing a bit on much, but it has definitely sets up some really good horror moments. You know, the opening uh, attack of, of the spider, which is kind of uh, shown in such a way that you really don't know uh, what's going on. You don't know what is the the menace yet. Um, but that's definitely, I think, one of his more uh, dynamic uh, directorial efforts. You know, I, I think one of the kind of one of the things with Gordon that I don't quite think he was quite the... You know, he wasn't the director that Corman was because I think that sometimes his films, you know, he had the idea of like, all right, we're going to have this movie about a giant guy or a giant this or a giant that. But he didn't know necessarily how to build the strongest narrative around this giant whatever threat. Um, you know, a narrative that would really... Engross the audience you know i think the amazing colossal man's kind of a good example of that you know obviously it was a, a hit when it came out they did it a sequel a lot of people are familiar with that movie but you know the antagonist the the threat the giant threat and that is a you know, military officer who gets caught in a uh, atomic nuclear you know test blast he grows to giant proportions and his hair is gone and he basically spends most of the movie just you know this middle-aged bald guy not in the best of shape walking around with like a toga on and you know, it's not really that threatening when you look at it. You know, uh, I mean, your mind knows that the, you know, uh, uh, 50, 60 foot tall guy like this, who's also his mind is starting to go, um, you know, could do a lot of damage, but it's not really, uh, you're never afraid of it because it's just, it just looks kind of ridiculous. And a lot of the time is just spent uh, in the narrative with, how are we going to get him back down to size? How are we, you know, he's upset about his, uh, his personal crisis that he's, he's not going to be able to uh, be cured of this. Um, and the sequel kind of went through some of those same issues with War of the Colossal Beast, where, you know, not, that film re- revolves around, you know, uh, this, this person still alive, this giant man, and his sister's hunting for him and trying to find out what happened to him. And again, it's just, He's a little more threatening in that movie because he they they changed up his presentation. He was played by an actor who was, uh, had a little bit more of a physique, and they gave him like a missing eye with this really cool exposed skull. But still, a lot of the movie is just, you know, my sister looking for the, her brother. And, uh, you know, how are we going to get him back down to size? There isn't this uh, developed storyline that really uh, pulls you in and really, uh, uh, really keeps you at a heightened interest in the same way that like Corman would do with things, you know, Corman, you know, you think of a Corman movie, like it conquered the world and, and the threat in that is, um, you know, an alien from Venus that's able to uh, create these bat creatures that uh, take over people's minds. And, you think how he constantly, uh, was popping things into that narrative uh, throughout that film, like the, you know, the bats attacking people, uh, uh, the bats turning people who were, uh, protagonists within the film into antagonists because their bodies were basically being taken over. You know, someone who you thought was a good person might suddenly turn on you and become, uh, someone who's trying to kill you. There was a lot of, uh, things going on in that film between, uh, you know, Peter Graves being a scientist trying to uh, stop the Venusian threat and his his buddy Lee Van Cleef is on the Venusian side. So there's a lot of things going on in that film that kept it going. Whereas with Gordon's films, I think sometimes it's like he thought that the idea of this giant uh, being animal creature, or in case of puppet people a miniaturized one, is kind of like that's enough. And now let's, you know, we have the idea. The idea is this thing's gonna be giant. People are going to be scared of it. Let's make the effects uh, happen to make that work because he did a lot of his own effects work. And not that the same kind of effort or energy or detail wasn't really given to making the rest of the story that would have to carry a film for even 75 minutes, 80 minutes, interesting enough. Um, So I think that was a weakness of his work. I don't, by no means do I, you know, I, I still enjoy watching his movies, but he definitely wasn't able to craft things the same way like a Corman was. I think the stuff he did in the 70s uh, was a little stronger, like Food of the Gods and Empire of the Ants. And I also really think that when he stepped outside the box and um, made movies like uh, The Police Connection, which was kind of his version of like a Dirty Harry French Connection story, um, or uh, The Magic Sword, which is a fantasy movie he did in the early 60s, which is like everything, we're going to throw everything yeah, but the kitchen sink into this movie with two-headed dragons and haunted caves and a sorcerer and it's going to be like basically like a live-action comic book. The more he kind of got out of that that uh wheelhouse that he was known for i think the better his films were actually i think those are some of his stronger films but like i said earth versus the spider that's definitely uh i think one of his better uh movies from the the giants the mr big uh uh filmography that he's really known for um he did do some other kinds of movies he did some like sex comedies uh, but really kind of his high point really kind of started to die off into the 70s getting into the 80s he did a horror movie in the early 80s burned at the stake and it looked like his 1989 movie, Satan's Princess with Robert Forster, was going to be his, his swan song. And then uh, he came out in uh, 2015 with a movie, Secrets of a Psychopath. Way, I mean, he was in his 90s when he directed this movie. And that was his last film. So he passed away um, on March 8th, 100 years old. Uh, but definitely a legend in uh, the uh, sci-fi horror genre, especially like the, uh, the B-movie genre of the drive-ins and whatnot back in the day. And the other centenarian who uh, just passed away was an actress named Gloria Day. And she has a really interesting story. So she began in the entertainment industry actually as a magician from uh, the age of four. Her father had been a magician, uh, done a, a stage act, and he taught her some tricks. And she went with that uh, career and has a really important place in history because she was the first magician to ever perform in Las Vegas, which of course is now the, you know, the, the citadel of, of magic and magic acts. Um, but that was in 1941. Shortly after that, though, she moved to California and kind of left the magic trade behind and started uh, getting into acting. And most of her career um, over about a little over 10 year period from like the early mid forties to the late fifties was in small parts. She got, you know, bit roles, chorus, girl, dancer, and some pretty big films though, singing in the rain and American in Paris. She was in the the John Wayne movie, the sea chase. She did get one starring role, which was in a, a film serial called King of the Congo. And that uh, starred Buster Crabb who had played Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers back in the thirties in film serials. And that was over at Columbia pictures. Um, but it really didn't do anything to kind of uh you know build a career for her as a, a film star one of her last uh movies though she appeared in was plan nine from outer space you know the classic ed wood film and uh if you remember the movie you know bella Lugosi's character dies an off-screen death near the beginning you know, he gets hit by a car and there's his funeral and it, uh, there's a scene where a man and a woman leave the crypt and they're talking uh, and then the woman stumbles upon the bodies of these two gravediggers who had been murdered by a uh, vampire's character. And Day plays that woman, uh, that that female mourner. And she uh, talked about the experience uh, later on in life. The quote from her is um, I was in the Saturday matinees for the kids. Plan 9 from Outer Space was the worst movie of all time. I had fun making it, though. But to my knowledge, I think she is the last, she was the last surviving cast member of that movie. I went, I went through, uh, into a deep dive into IMDB territory. And, uh, basically everyone's dead from the movie. There was one actor who had a really small part that they didn't list a birth or death date for, but he'd have to be pretty old if he was still alive. So I think she was the last surviving cast member of that movie. But shortly after that, filming her role in that, uh, she left, uh, the entertainment industry behind, uh, she sold insurance, a while, she sold uh, cars, and became a, a very successful at a, uh, as a sales rep uh, for cars. But then, uh, the really interesting thing is that shortly before she passed away, like I think it was like a year or so before she passed away, there's this discovery of her by the uh, magician community, you know, um, who you know didn't really know about uh, her. And even uh, David Copperfield, you know, uh, her her story came to his attention. So there was this really great um, time she had at the end of her life, where she finally got recognition for what had been the foundation of her career, and for the fact that she was the uh, first magician to ever perform in Las Vegas. So you know it's a really cool story, uh, and definitely, obviously, you know, for cult film fans playing Night for Outer Space, you know, it's a, a lot of fun and great film, so, uh, definitely worth noting her passing. And the very last, uh, loss we had that I wanted to really touch upon, I actually just read about it today, was a gentleman, a gentleman named Bird Holland, who passed away at the beginning of this month, age 95, and he started out as an actor, uh, small parts in movies, a lot of, uh, cult films. He was in the original The Fast and the Furious, which Roger Corman produced uh, back in 1954. Uh, I think that was his first movie. He was in the uh, Johnny Cash uh, suspense movie Five Minutes to Live. He played the sheriff in the uh, infamous The Creeping Terror that uh, Mystery Science Theater later rift. And appeared in some higher budgeted stuff. He had a part in uh, Madame X with Lana Turner. But not too long into his acting career, he started to transition into makeup. Uh, and started to work as a makeup artist on films. And initially, a lot of that was lower budgeted stuff. Sometimes he would also get roles in these movies he was doing makeup effects on. And uh, you know, very familiar movies to cult movie fans. Uh, he was uh, the Undertaker and his pals. Uh, he was the makeup artist on that Journey to the Center of Time, The Mummy and the Curse of the Jackals, The Baby Terror Circus. Uh, and uh, one of, you know, a very high, uh, well-known horror movie of the late 70s, very well regarded one, David Cronenberg's Rabbit. And, uh, you know, as time went on, worked on some higher budgeted stuff, some uh, TV movies. And the thing that stood out to me, aside from obviously, you know, this great resume of cult classic movies he worked on, was that he was involved with four movies that Bob Dix was in. You know, Robert Dix, who was in The Last Frankenstein as the patriarch of our Frankenstein family and whose, you know, career goes way back to the 1950s, was on Forbidden Planet and a bunch of Al Adams and stuff. So uh, Bert Holland was the makeup artist on Kane's Cutthroats and the Road Hustlers. Uh, The Road Hustlers came out in 68. Uh, Kane's Cutthroats came out in 70. And um, Holland also secured a role in The Road Hustlers. And, not as a makeup artist, just as an actor, he appeared in a Wild Wheels and Soul Soldier, which came out in 1969 and 1970, respectively. So these are four Bob Dix movies. Um, it's just interesting. I mean, it could be just coincidence, but the fact that, like, you know, you know, Bob worked with a lot of the same people. Obviously, you know, he worked with Al Adamson five times. He did stuff with Kent Osborne, another cult filmmaker. You know, he was buddies with uh, John Bud Cardos. So it's possible that, you know, um, Bert Holland's involvement with these movies was through similar uh, uh, channels, but I am just kind of wondering, you know, it, you know, could it have been through Bob uh, that he got this work or vice versa? You know, I did shoot a message out to Bob's widow, Lynette, uh, but she didn't really know one way or the other. You know, she, she married Bob uh, much later in life, much longer after, uh, you know, his film, his film career had passed by. But, you know, it just really kind of, you know, stood out to me as interesting that, you know, he had these various connections to our, our patriarch, our Franken-patriarch on The Last Frankenstein. All right, so just want to cover a real quick couple uh, title announcements, new release announcements that some of the physical media companies put out recently. Uh, one of the big ones for me is that Kino Lorber, uh, you, know, you know, the very prolific uh, physical media label. Uh, is going to release on Blu-ray uh, Columbo, the entire Columbo series, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, you know, for those not familiar with it, uh, Columbo was, it started out actually as a character in a short story. That's where the origins of Columbo can be traced to, is a short story written by uh, the creative team of Richard Levinson and William Link. And they adapted that their short story It was called May I Come In, Uh, also had been published as Dear Corpus Delecti, uh, in which the police character's name was Fisher, not Columbo. They adapted it into uh, an episode of an anthology TV series back in 1960, the, the Chevy Mystery Show, and they adapted it into an episode called Enough Rope. And the character... Of Colombo was played by Burt Freed, who was a, you know a veteran character actor. Um, he was in Paths of Glory by Kubrick. I mean, tons of movies. I mean, probably one of his biggest roles was he's the main villain in the first in in Billy Jack. Um, uh, that came out in like 1971. He's he's the bad guy in that. But um, you know, after that, they took their uh, teleplay Levinson and Link. And adapted into a play called Prescription Murder, in which uh, Thomas Mitchell, of all people, played Columbo, you know, the Academy Award winning actor who probably most people now know as Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, the next stop was that they wanted to to take that and take that uh, stage play and then make it into a television movie uh, over at NBC. And uh, they did, and it's interesting that the original people who uh, they considered for the role of Columbo were uh, Lee J. Cobb and Bing Crosby, um, which didn't work out for either one of those. Of course, Lee J. Cobb, the famous Academy Award-nominated actor uh, from uh, 12 Angry Men and On the Waterfront, and Bing Crosby, you know, the singer-actor. Um, and then eventually uh, Peter Falk got into the mix and and played him. And that was, uh, as, as with the play, it was called Prescription Murder, and uh, had Columbo going up against a, uh, a psychiatrist played by Gene uh, Barry of the War of the Worlds and Burke's Law, Who kills his wife and it was a a big hit um and they were curious you know nbc if they could actually turn this into uh, an actual series so they uh made a a second tv movie a 90 minute one uh called ransom for a dead man and this time around lee grant the academy award-winning actress uh she played the killer and from there it was like all right let's let's actually do a series you know and um you know, Universal Pictures was, was making these. And they were also, uh, just at this time, they had the uh, NBC Mystery Movie uh, series coming out, which is a, a, a wheel series. And what that means is that uh, with a wheel series, instead of you having a, a show like, uh, you know, like Law and Order or Dragnet or whatever, where each, uh, each week it's uh, another episode of that series, with the wheel format, what you have is different shows rotating within the same time slot. And, uh, in the case of the, um, NBC mystery movie wheel series, they would, uh, they started out by, uh, rotating in Colombo, uh, McMillan and wife, um, McLeod and a show called Heck Ramsey. And they would show one of these actually once a month, you know, as opposed to weekly. And this went on from 1971 to 1978. Now they, uh, the three of these, uh, Columbo McCloud, and McMillan. way for the only three that lasted the entire, the entire run of the NBC mystery movie format. Um, the, uh, the fourth show, there was different ones that kind of came and went. And then, uh, after, uh, the, the wheel, that wheel series came to an end in 78, uh, Columbo came back in the late eighties, uh, for a series of TV movies, uh, that continued on until, uh, 2003. Now the whole premise of Columbo is that he's a uh, homicide detective for, uh, LA, LA area. And, uh, you know, he, he looks very, uh, disheveled. You know, he's got the cigar, he, uh, the rumble, the raincoat, he drives a beat up car, but he's very intelligent. He's very observant and, um, constantly underestimated by the killer in each episode who is known to the audience right from the beginning. This is a show, which does not, it's not about finding out who did it. It's about showing how that person is caught. And, uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, the, these killers, they're played by guest stars, you know, pretty big names at the time. And they're usually, you know, very wealthy characters. The characters that are uh, murderers in Colombo are, um, you know, it's not generally like a street killing or a mucking. It's it's a very successful person who's killing someone. And the writing on the show was great. You know, it was, it, you know, it was very well written. The character of Columbo is very nuanced, very well realized by both the writing staff and also Falk in his portrayal, which, you know, he won a, a more than one Emmy for that character. But, uh, you know, beyond just the writing, which is the backbone of it, it's also just, you know, and this is one of the reasons I love all these, a lot. Of, well, not all of them, but a lot of these uh, NBC uh, mystery movie shows and a lot of Universal product at the time is their aesthetic. You know, Universal, you know, they were also at this time making uh, shows like, um, you know, Night Gallery and uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker and uh, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries and TV movies like Duel and uh, Fear No Evil. And you know some of these were at varying budget levels. Obviously, you know Colombo was at the higher end, and stuff like Kolchak at the lower end. But they shared what they shared was this this very well realized color palette that you notice in a lot of Universal productions at that time. It's there's there's different color palettes. You know, obviously, when you look at the '70s in, in American cinema, you know you have like kind of like the gritty uh, realized world of stuff like The French Connection, um, and you have the um, very dark earthy uh, tones of films like deliverance um, but then you also have uh, what you see seen a live Universal project is, this it's saturated, but not not overly so. It's not saturated to the point of unrealism, like you would see in like a nineteen forties Technicolor musical, where the color pops in a way that you know you don't see in real life. You know, yeah, the the, the slightest bit of uh, you know, rose color in Judy Carlin's cheeks are enough to blind you. But in it's almost like when they were making stuff at Universal in the seventies, they the cinematographer would walk into a room and be like, okay, we got some stuff here that's really seventies. We got a banana colored chair and a uh, an orange couch and um, you know this, this pop and lime green uh, you know coaster or whatever or a cup. And we're gonna basically shoot this in a way that makes all those things which are so distinctly 70s really pop out. And it's just a, a wonderful color palette that really captures that time so well and is so common to the universal product of that era. and I love it. And on top of that though, because the uh, killers in Colombo are wealthy, uh, they would shoot a lot of times at these incredible uh, locations, which I assume are in the Hollywood, LA area. These incredible houses with amazing architecture—I mean, just uh, you know, jaw-dropping. So it was a show that had this great character, these really interesting storylines. Um, you know, incredible guest stars, like I said. Uh, you know, you could go on and on about all the actors who showed up on Columbo, people like, you know, Roddy McDowell and Leonard Nimoy and Shatner and, you know, uh, Academy Award winners like Donna Michi and Anne Baxter. I mean, just everyone was on that show. And once in a while, you catch someone who is just coming up, like, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis or Kim Cattrall or, you know, but also it just was so visually appealing. And in the music, you know, Billy Goldenberg, who is a composer who I'm a huge fan of, uh, he scored some of the episodes of Columbo. Um, and, you know, some really strong directors there too. Steven Spielberg, of course, is famous for having directed the, the first episode of the actual run of Columbo, the 71 to 78 run. And uh, Jonathan Demme directed an episode, so it's just uh, you'll know, be great to finally see this show in high def to see that those colors and that look restored to high definition. So really excited about that. Um, you know, there had been some prior releases of just season one out in, over in the UK. There was like a Japanese set of the complete show and on Blu-ray, but it was um, I heard uh, not great things about it. But this is going to be really good. Uh, they're going to release it in two volumes, Kino Lorber. The first one will be the uh, the first couple pilot movies and the uh, original run, and that's going to come out later this year, and then they're going to follow that up with the later TV movies uh, volume uh, at the end of this year or beginning of 2024. Not really as much into those ones because, you know for all the reasons I just stated, you know, now they're shooting in the late 80s, mid 90s, you know, which is a, a time period on network television, which I think is pretty rough from an aesthetic standpoint. So there's things about those that just kind of lack, they don't have as quite the, uh, the star power in the guest roster as uh, on the old show. So, you know, I'll definitely, you know, pick it up for complete sake for faithfulness to the Columbo world. But, um, you know, it's really that original run where it's at. So very excited about that and just real quick um, Warner Archive which is the uh, kind of the sub label that Warner Brothers has going of DVD and Blu-ray releases um, yeah you know, they i think they're on a monthly schedule where they they generally release a few you know several titles every month they just announced their next upcoming batch of titles for April. And, you know, Warner Brothers, like a lot of studios, owns the catalogs of several different, uh, companies through different acquisitions over time. Uh, You know, Warner Brothers owns, uh, you know, most of the MGM catalog, most movies made by MGM up until like, you know, a certain time period in the, a certain point in the early mid eighties. Um, you know, uh, because, you know, Ted Turner bought the MGM library and Turner became a part of, you know, Warner Brothers and so on and so forth. Um, but for this uh, upcoming uh, month, they, because this is the 100th anniversary they're celebrating of Warner Brothers, they decided to make the releases all actual Warner Brothers titles, not not from any other companies whose assets they own. And two of the films I just want to touch on real quickly that they're putting out, they both star James Cagney, you know, the legendary... Uh, Oscar-winning actor, star of so many gangster films and musicals and you know, a whole variety of uh, types of genres over his career. Uh, movies like Angels with Dirty Faces and The Public Enemy and Yankee Digital Dandy, which is what he won his Oscar for. And they're putting out two of his collaborations with director Raul Walsh, who is probably, in terms of his relationship with Cagney, best known for uh, teaming up with him on White Heat, you know, the, you know, the amazing White Heat. But uh, they're going to put out Warner Archives Blu-rays of The Strawberry Blonde, which is a film uh, Cagney did in 1941. It's, uh, you know, 1900-ish in New York City, uh, a romantic comedy with a bunch of tunes of the time that um, has Cagney as a dentist uh, who has uh, this, uh, uh, you know, ongoing uh, grudge against this guy he knows, played by Jack Carson, who ended up with the girl that uh, Cagney Long sought after, uh, played by Rita Hayworth. Um, and De Havilland is uh, the lady that Cagney does end up with. And the other film is a lion. A lion is in the streets from 1953, which is a uh, kind of a Huey Long-esque uh, film. Uh, you know the famous southern politician who was assassinated, and whose life served as the basis for uh, all the king's men. Uh, this is a, a film, uh, you know, very much in that vein that Cagney did in the early 50s. It was produced by his brother William Cagney. It was the last film that uh, William produced. He had done a number of. James's movies it worked as a producer on Yankee Doodle Dandy and uh later movies like Blood on the Sun and um you know it's definitely you know considered one of you know not one of Cagney's better films it's probably considered more one of his middling efforts but uh you know to finally see both of these kind of get a nice high def restoration and kind of fill in those holes in your Cagney collection is is, uh, definitely, uh, will be rewarding. You know, uh, Lioness in the Streets has a really interesting cast too. You know, it's got Anne Francis, you know, the lovely Anne Francis that I'm a, you know, very much, uh, a follower of, uh, Barbara Hale from Perry Mason. It's got Lon Chaney Jr. in it. Um, you know, and interestingly, of course, a few years later, Cagney would play Lon Chaney Sr. in Man of a Thousand Faces. So just really quick one to give a shout out to those two movies because, you know, I am definitely, uh, a big, uh, cagney and, uh, really hoping that someday they release, uh, Shortcut to Hell, which is the only movie Cagney ever directed. He did that in uh, 1957, and it was uh, uh, an adaptation of uh, Graham Greene's "The This Gun for Hire" that he did, which had been, you know, so famously filmed in the 40s with Alan Ladd. And that I don't believe has ever had any physical media release—VHS, nothing—and um, that's kind of to me like the probably the biggest of the uh, holy grails of uh, the Cagney. The Cagney works. Uh, he's not really in the movie. I think he has a, a brief appearance. I didn't like to introduce it or something like that. You know, it has other people uh, who star in it. But you know, I'm really curious to see what. Cagney would do behind the camera and how he would film something especially in 1957 you know this is kind of like uh, you know he has had such a history under his belt already and such an experience working with so many famous directors you know I really hope that someone puts that out at some point which that's a paramount title so it wouldn't be through Warner but hopefully someone does tackle that at uh, some point all right so last but not least time to jump into movie I watched recently that I've been looking forward to talking about. It's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to uh, record this podcast now uh, before it gets uh, any more aged in my mind, because I watched it a couple weeks ago now. Uh, it's a, a 1956 film called A Kiss Before Dying, and speaking of Kino Lorber, they're the ones who put this out on Blu-ray, and they were discontinuing the title, so I, you know, I knew it was something I'd want to check out at some point and picked it up and was really impressed by just how good it was. I knew it had a good reputation. It's like a solid uh, suspense movie, um, but it really even uh, exceeded any of those kind of expectations as just this intelligently crafted uh, film. And it's based on a novel by Ira Levin, who uh, horror fans, of course, are familiar with Levin. He wrote the novels Rosemary's Baby, The Stepford Wives, um, The Boys from Brazil, uh, and *Incomplete*. <laughs> complete 180 fashion, he also wrote the play No Time for Sergeants, you know, which was you know, turned into the uh, uh, famous Andy Griffith film. And this movie stars Robert Wagner, completely cast against the type, you know, at this time, you know, he was, you know, very much a, uh, a good-looking leading man. And he plays a college student named Bud Corliss, who is this very much a uh, sociopathic social uh, climber, social ladder climber, whose plans to uh, advance himself, uh, he feels threatened when he realizes that his girlfriend, played by Joanne Woodward, um, just making her second movie, when he finds out that she's pregnant. And so then he uh, sets about plotting to kill her in a way that will you know, look like a suicide, uh, so that he won't be um, you know, found out, and so that he can continue on with his uh plans to better himself and so the first third of the movie you know I'm, anyone who knows me knows i'm like you know kind of anti uh, three-act structure um but this film is really uh, wonderfully structured into in you know three distinct pieces so the first uh, you know third of the film is really about wagner you know meticulously plotting out this uh, uh murder uh, of Woodward. And that's no spoiler, by the way. Uh, it's, it's right in the trailer that she gets killed. So, uh, don't, don't get mad at me. Um, and then the second, the next, the next, uh, third of the movie, the middle part of the movie is about, uh, Joanne Woodward's sister, uh, played by Virginia Leith, who most people, uh, would know as, uh, the, uh, the head without a body and the brain that wouldn't die. But this was when she this was before that. Um, She plays Joy Woodward's sister, who doesn't believe that her sister committed suicide, and is uh, basically doing her own uh, detective work uh, to try to find out what really happened to her. And then, of course, the last third of the movie is those two storylines coming together. But it's just a really well-crafted film. You know, there's moments in the movie where it plants a seed— something small will happen on screen, something that you might not even take strong notice of, two characters passing or, um, you know, an offhand comment one character makes. And you'll realize later on in the film that that was actually, they were, they were planning a foundation for, um, an important turn in the plot that would come later, you know, and they did it without like really drawing a lot of attention to it. It's very subtly done. There's a lot of really interesting, uh, symbolism in the film um if you want to call it that there's a lot of interesting the director Gerd oswald who was um, a german filmmaker who had come to america you know he he does a lot of interesting things with signs signs in the movie um you know signs about speed kills or or there's a, a really great moment where um near the beginning of the film, where after finding out that his girlfriend's pregnant, Robert Wagner drag, drives Dwayne Woodward to a pharmacy to go get her some medication. And, and there's a sign that's really nicely featured that says, no parking, which, you know, parking at the time, you know, it was also a slang for, you know, making out. And it's nice how they do all these kind of visual touches to kind of like, uh, use these signs to also touch upon what's going on in the film. Um, Wagner is really good in this. I, I've always been a Wagner fan and, you know, there's a degree, I think, to which he's, you know, his was pegged as kind of this actor who is better looking than he was uh, skilled, but he really, really does a good job at bringing to life this person who really doesn't have, you know, any concern whatsoever for the well being of other people, who's really has this kind of sociopathic element to him. I, I kind of wish they had gotten a little bit more into what made him this way they do touch upon it a little bit there's references to you know him having had a father who is a disappointment there's these conversation scenes between him and his mother played by the great mary Astor. you can tell that that's something that kind of impacted his character and that he's trying to avoid that same fate but still you know it's even even without that he just does a really good job at uh realizing this character. Um, I do wish there had been more of Mary Astor. Uh, she's great as always in the film, but she doesn't really have as much screen time as you'd like. It's very captivating to the way that the story, uh, you know, they really, for that whole first third, you know, you're with really with Wagner watching him, you know, as he's trying to, uh, uh carry out his plans to kill Joanne Woodward and how obstacles get in the way and how he has to constantly pivot to other ideas. And you, you know, it's kind of like one of those situations where like, whoa, I hope that works out for him, even though he's trying to kill his girlfriend, because it really just gets you with him and you're spending that time with him. And it really completely, you know, engrosses uh, you into the, into the plot and keeps you interested. Uh, and then similarly, when you're with life's character with a sister's character, at which point the film really does let Robert Wagner kind of go in the back burner for a little bit. Now you're similarly with her and, and, and in her corner. You're like, all right, she, you know, is she going to find out that it's Wagner? What's going to happen? And of course, you know more than she does as a viewer. You know, she's still got to figure this all out because she doesn't even, you know, you know, she suspects that her sister was murdered, but she really doesn't know what's going on. Um, so it's just a really, really well-made movie. Yeah, I, I think it's the best movie I haven't seen, you know, scores of films yet this year but i definitely think it's the high point of the movies that i've seen this year that were first time watches um you know i'd really love to see like a full-blown restoration of this movie it was shot by Lucien ballard lucian probably is how it's pronounced uh, who shot a lot of sam peckinpah's movies i'm a huge sam peckinpah fan the famous director and this was one of the early blu-rays that Kino lorber put out when they first started their line of studio classics uh, you know, now it's very common for them. They're always putting to put these out with, uh, you know, a lot of times with do transfers and extras and bonus features, but they were just starting the line out at this point. So it was really, I think they just took the, the existing master, uh, that was handed to them and it has a lot of color fluctuation and it's definitely a film that would really benefit, especially a lot of the really great nighttime photography in the movie. Um, you know, with like the, the neon colored lights of local businesses and stuff. It would really be nice to see this with a, a, a whole new, uh, fresh, fresh scan. Uh, interesting cast in the movie, obviously, aside from the ones we mentioned. Um, George McReady, you know, the great character actor, plays the father of Joanne Woodward and Virginia Lice's characters, you know, this kind of icy, distant, uh, you know, successful uh, businessman. Um, Robert Quarry, who, of course, become very familiar to... Uh, fans of horror films for playing, uh, Count Yorga in the seventies and the two Count Yorga movies and showing up in stuff like, um, the Death Master and Sugar Hill. He, uh, he has a very pivotal role in the movie. Uh, and I, you know, the weaker link is, uh, actually Jeffrey Hunter, um, who interestingly, he and Robert Wagner, not too long after this movie was made, would play the James brothers in a Nicholas Ray's The True Story of Jesse James. Uh, Robert would play Jesse and Hunter would play, um, frank but in this film hunter plays a uh another college student whose um, uncle is the local police inspector police detective chief and um so hunter kind of gets involved in kind of sleuthing this stuff out too he kind of plays it you know i I wonder if it was his decision the director's decision he tries to play it against his type too because he was also a very good looking guy you know um and he kind of plays it like from almost like the bookish professorish uh viewpoint. You know, he's got a pipe, that he's constantly uh, handling and glasses. And it's a little too much on the nose with that stuff. I think, you know, it's a, uh, I think he could have pulled back on some of that stuff, but still, you know, he, he's adequate. It's not like it's a bad performance, but I think he's definitely a little bit of the weaker link in the film. It's, um, you know, I think of Jeffrey Hunter, of course, you know, you think of him more in star mode, uh, top build mode with stuff like King of Kings and you know, going on to play Captain Pike in Star Trek. And here he's, you know, he's he's playing a little bit of a second fiddle to Wagner and Leith. But still, um, you know, he's he's capable in the part. You know, Woodward considered this, interestingly. You know, of course, she would go on and marry Paul Newman. Well, actually, I think they were already married at this point, but she would go on to, uh, you know, become an Academy Award-winning actress with the Three Faces of Eve, um, you know, starring in all these classic movies. She referred to this as, I believe, like the worst movie she ever made. Now, Woodward, you know, has a pretty impressive filmography. So maybe technically it is the worst movie she ever made. But, um, if it is, it's not in the way that she meant it. I mean, it's a really good film. I think her haircut is one of the worst haircuts I've ever seen. Um, I don't know what they were thinking with that. It's this like crazy short kind of reminds me of Janet Lee and the Naked Spur. Um, but, uh, you know, it's definitely, uh, she, she's a bit hard on this movie for sure, unnecessarily so. But yeah, like I said, directed by uh, Gerard Oswald. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, who is a German director? Like I said, born in Berlin in 1919. His father, Richard Oswald, had been a director of silent films, and uh, Gerd came over to the uh, to the states, having already worked in the European film industry and worked as like you know did a lot of assistant director work and on some pretty big movies. You know, um, you know Sunset Boulevard, A Place in the Sun, uh, Five Fingers, and this film you know, Kiss Before Dying, would actually mark his first directorial effort of a feature film. Um, you know, and he continued on directing movies. He did A Crime of Passion with Barbara Stanwyck. Um, you know, some of his movies uh, were a little more ill-fated, though. He uh, The uh, infamous um, Wayne Newton, starring movie Aided Steps to Jonah, uh, as well as the film Agent for Harm, which was another victim of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. He did a lot of TV episodes, too. You know, I'm a big fan of the original Perry Mason. He directed some episodes of that as well. I would say that this is probably, you know, his most acclaimed uh, feature film that he directed. And rightly so. You know, he definitely, to me, he put a lot of thought into into his uh visualization of the story i mean I, I always liked it so much i went on ebay and bought a vintage copy of the book so i can uh, to check that out uh i guess the movie follows the book pretty closely the ending is essentially the same the mechanism of the ending is a little different in the book because uh, i went ahead and uh checked it out on the good old wikipedia and I, I i kind of wish they had done it uh i wish they had done the ending like it was in the book But being this uh, was 1956, I could imagine for a variety of reasons, from budget to content, why they didn't. Um, But if you do watch the movie uh, and you don't think you're going to read the book, but you like the movie, at least look at at how it uh, ended, how the storyline comes to an end in the book. But definitely check this out. Uh, like I said, this is on the discontinued list from King of Lorber, which means that um, you know once they finish selling out of whatever copies they have, there are no immediate plans to make any more copies. I guess it's always possible they could you know relicense it and maybe even give it a new scan. But you know for now, this once this Blu-ray goes out of print, uh, there it won't be available that that uh, high-def transfer uh, anytime soon, uh, unless you want to stalk the streets of eBay. Uh, but yeah, a kiss before dying. Definitely recommend that. So, all right. So I think that's uh, a little over an hour here now. Um, so we're going to wrap this up. Uh, really thanks everybody for listening to these episodes. Um, there is a degree to which, you know, it's always a balancing act between, you know, prepping for it. And some of it's just kind of like, you just got to kind of go with what time you have to kind of go off, the, off the cuff. Um, But, uh, you know, really appreciate everybody listening to it, despite any uh, rough edges. Going to keep up with the new episodes, like I said, uh, dropping every Monday. It might be very late Monday, like today, technically, but um, it will be out there. And uh, like I said, going to look at some options for a Patreon just to kind of, for the whole Gila Films uh, brand and maybe get those uh, older episodes up as part of that. So, uh, again, thank you very much for tuning into Carpet City Cinema and uh, please uh, like us on Facebook, Um, and also be looking out on YouTube channel, the Gila Films YouTube channel, because I am going to upload, I'm going to upload these episodes there too, you know, there won't really be any video, but uh, some people were asking if it was going to be up on YouTube as well, so that will happen. All right, so thanks a lot for listening, and uh, take care, and thank you for checking out Carpet City Cinema.